Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, and this podcast is for investment professionals only. Why should I reconsider my allocation to Asia? That's the question Fidelity answers. In this podcast, we explore the very latest in the investment world in Asia, challenge some received wisdom, and find out who's putting money where in the region. And it might not be what you expect. I'm joined here in our Hong Kong studio by two investment directors and experts on the region, Luke Fröhlich from Fixed Income and Gary Monihan, who covers equities. Welcome to you both. Now, we're recording this just after the announcement of which Chinese mainland listed stocks are to be included in the MSCI flagship Emerging Markets Index. Now, it's a benchmark for over a trillion and a half dollars worth of assets. Gary, is this a game changer for the region as well as for China? It is in that Chinese mainland shares can no longer be ignored. Um, I think it's fair to say that if we if we consider where investors have been putting their money in the last, well, for the last 10 years or even longer than that, it's been very easy to ignore the mainland um, because it's not in the index. Suddenly they move into the index and you can no longer ignore it. So in, in that sense, definitely it is a game changer. And what it also means for, for asset manufacturers, even like the likes of Fidelity, is that if you haven't already been looking at A shares, you're going to have to start doing that. And it's not an easy task. Um, the companies generally report in Mandarin. Um, the, the company reports will be written in Mandarin as well. So you, you need to get your analysts in place to, in order to do that. And it's, it's not an easy task. Well, I'm sure you've been brushing up your own Mandarin, uh, Gary, but nobody's denying that is one of the, the greatest hurdles uh, to investing in, in China is that the companies are, of course, reporting in their own native tongue. So you've got to be able to master that. How, how, how do we cope with it? Um, quite simply, there's no substitute for having people on the ground. Um, so we've got analysts here in, in Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Shanghai as well, who, who speak the language and, and go and meet the companies face to face. Now, Luke, um, in the fixed income world, you must be fed up with the attention that your equities colleagues are, are, are getting um, with all this MSCI, a share index excitement. But um, is there a halo effect of raising the profile of investing in the region in all asset classes as a result of all of this? Well, Richard, I'm actually not fed up. We have also <laughs> a little revolution going on. Actually, a few weeks ago, the Bloomberg Barclays Index announced that they're also going to include China onshore in their own index. So this is causing a little real revolution in our bond market too. As Gary mentioned, this is definitely attracting more attention toward the onshore market in China. Uh, the, the inclusion is going to lead a lot of the benchmark follower, which is a large amount of uh, institutional money, to direct a bit more attention toward the onshore bond market. So we are talking about 5% in this uh, Bloomberg Barclays Index, 5% for China onshore. It's not very large. If you compare this to the size of the China onshore bond market, which is about 12 trillion US dollar, it's it's a drop, but it's a beginning. And, and I was going to add to that. What, what we've seen in the last 12 months is equities have done a very good marketing job in terms of talking about MSCI, including A shares. And when we go and meet clients, that's the questions are always directed towards the equity world. And it seems to me that it's often sort of not ignored, but not well known that it's happening in, in the fixed income space as well. And, and, and that's something which I think is quite important because there's not just equity money coming into the mainland, but, but fixed income money as well, which is probably on, on, on the whole a bigger wall of cash. How are the clients changing? Who is putting money into, into China now? Is, is that changing? 
Look on the fixed income side. Uh, if you look at the bond market, the the main player are still the in the institutional money. If you look at the overall China onshore bond market, overall we have about less than two percent of foreign ownership. And if you look at the composition of this ownership, it's mostly institutional client like central bank, sovereign wealth fund. The retail investor should come, but later on. The message hasn't reached that far yet, or is it confidence? A lack of confidence. It's simply a different stage of development of the market. You would typically see first the institutional going money going there. They have more resources to to analyze the market and follow that the, the retail investor. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same really for the equity space in that the key that unlocked the A share market for for investors was Stock Connect, uh, and that is really something that institutions can can use. Um, and it's not that easy for the retail the retail guy to do that unless they they invest in companies like ourselves. And thinking about the questions that um, these clients, the institutional clients, um, are asking you both, how have they changed um, over the past couple of years? Much more receptive, I think, to, to A-shares. Um, before, it was very easy to, to ignore because it was never in the benchmark. Also, you could pretty much say, oh, you know, we, we don't know the companies very well, there's corporate governance issues, and then you could just ignore the entire market. But don't forget, the, the market itself, if you look at Shanghai and Shenzhen, they've got a market cap of about seven and a half trillion. Compare that to Tokyo, which is 6.8 trillion. Okay, so, so the mainland is actually a bigger market than Japan. You can't um, ignore that. So you can't ignore it, but, but people were because, because of the point that they, they were not in the index. We see a similar development on the, the fixed income side. I've been in Asia for the past seven years. And what I would say is like we are entering the, the third phase. The first phase was going to Europe, meeting some international investor, and the question was, why? Why would I put my money in Asia and specifically in China? A few years after that, the question was actually, can you, can you give me a positive argument for me to invest in, in, in Asia or in China? Because they wanted to convince also their investment board mm -hmm. to start putting money in China and in Asia. And now we're entering the third stage, and the third stage is how? How do I do that? Well, Gary, let's um, talk a little bit more detail now about the MSCI. It's about to push huge companies, some still unknown abroad, onto the world stage. What impact is that going to have on their business? Well, first of all, you, you should see more sort of, let's say, foreign institutional investors on, on the shareholder register, which you know, can bring sort of more questions. So you, you, you tend to get maybe a little bit more activist type of investors and particularly a greater focus on ESG, which as you know is a key theme at the moment. And something that management teams perhaps until now have not had to concern themselves with perhaps? Not so much. I mean, it, it is a growing theme globally anyway. So, so it, is, it's, it shouldn't come as a surprise to any company, but um, as you get more international investors on, you know, as I said, on the shareholder register, do expect to see a, a lot more focus on ESG, corporate governance, um, and, and, and just general questioning around the, you know, what's, what's going on with the business and the direction that it's heading. And what are they going to do with the money that this investment represents? Well, hopefully the good companies will get uh, sort of a greater, uh, greater percentage of the cash that comes in, particularly if you think as us as an, as an active manager, we can choose the businesses that we, that we invest in. So hopefully the better companies get more, more cash, which they can then reinvest in the business at hopefully greater rates of return. One of the, the comments that I frequently hear from international investors, when I tell them, hey, look at this market, it's growing so fast, I often hear, well, that means that these companies are just piling up more debt. So mm -hmm. it's actually, from a risk point of view, this is not a good thing. 
it's actually not really the case. It's also has to do with the stage of evolution of this company. Most of the company in Asia, in particular in China, have been extremely reliant on the banking system. So really using mm. loans to finance their working capital or the expansion. Now, if you see, um, if you continue evolving, becoming more sophisticated, you need larger amount of capital, which bank cannot provide you. So you need to go on the capital market. The other thing is that the more sophisticated you become, the more diverse you want your sources of funding to be. So that's also a motivation for this company to come into the Asian US dollar bond market or international market. So it's not necessarily the same company issuing more debt, it's actually more company. And we see that every yeah. month you have made an issuer, a new name coming on the market. It requires a lot of um, research power, but at the same time, that's significantly increasing the diversification potential in our space. So if, if we're thinking about the, let's say, away from the, the very mega cap companies in the A share market, do you see them starting to use fixed income markets? Because I'm assuming a lot of the smaller companies don't really have much experience there. Are we seeing that happen more and more, do you think? The challenge that this company have at the moment is, is, is twofold. Firstly, for smaller company, they tend to be higher risk, more on the high yield space. Mm -hmm. And in China onshore, there is not yet a high yield market. Most of the high yield company that you would find are actually fallen angel. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is that at the moment, if you see this little name trying to issue on the US dollar bond market, they would have to pay yield that would be so high mm. just to make uh, make their offer palatable that it would not make sense for them. Yeah. So it, it, it is going to take time for the small guys to come on this market. Gary, you mentioned active management, but I wonder whether the inclusion in an index um, heralds the decline of, of active in China, because um, now comp uh, investors can park their cash in a fund that, uh, that tracks that index, get the exposure, get the diversification, for example, um, that, that China offers, um, but um, they can do it very cheaply. First of all, the, what you have to remember, the inclusion at the moment is at what they call a 5% inclusion rate. So effectively, they're, they're capping the size of the Chinese stocks to only 5% of their true size. And there's only 234 that are moving into the index. Out of several thousand. There's about four to about four to four and a half thousand listed companies. I mean, to be frank, a, a big chunk of those are relatively uninvestable for in investors like ourselves because of uh, sort of liquidity constraints and such. But, but there is a lot of companies which are not in the index for a start. So active managers can look beyond the, the boundaries of the index, which it creates alpha, hopefully, if you, if you get your stock call right. This is actually another question that I frequently get is why would I use active management to invest in a market like China onshore? And I'm very open about the, the use of, uh, of passive investment in certain markets, highly developed, efficient market. It can make a lot of sense especially as a complement to an active strategy. Now, if you look at the specifically China onshore bond market, one of the big challenge there is to properly assess the credit risk of issuers. So you know that onshore, they have a different rating system. The local rating agency only use three ratings, the triple A, double A and single A. And effectively, it's only a relatively recent trend where you see a differentiation in the credit spread of the different uh, rating group. 
So the, the challenge if you are an international investor and you try to follow those ratings is that you, especially if you do passively, you're just going to invest randomly and you don't know which are the credit are, we are going to, uh, the spread of which is going to widen and the one that they're going to tighten. So it is really a market where active management makes a lot of sense. Um, much less diversification in terms of the official rating, but your point is that there is diversification um, in the reality of how, how companies are, are being managed and the risk that they represent. Absolutely. It's, it, it is a normal market, but the, the rating don't necessarily reflect this reality. If you're investing with active management, you can, you can choose the company managements you believe are working on your behalf as a shareholder. So don't forget that if you are investing in passive, particularly in China where there's a great deal of SOEs, you, you're embracing certain risks that maybe you don't, you're not aware of. Um, particularly if, if a large chunk of your passive market is a state-owned enterprise, you are, are investing in companies where you don't really have a say in what's going on. And, and the management is generally, let's say, government-driven somewhat, and they can call, be called upon to do national service. And sometimes that leads to poor capital allocation. So in other words, the, the company be, is being um, asked or told to behave in a way that suits the country rather than shareholders. E exactly. So I, I could be a state-owned bank, and Luke may be coming up with the best new idea that we've ever seen, but you happen to be a, an industry that employs two million people. And, and the government may say to me, well, you've got $500 million. You've got to give it to Richard because um, they, they're keeping two million people employed. Whereas really, if I'm thinking from a shareholder perspective and future growth, I should be giving that money to Luke. Mm. And, and then he can create incredible returns and, and that's the, the industry of the future. So, so without really realizing it sometimes in passive, you are, you're, you're pu putting money to, to companies where like I said, you don't have the greatest control and there can be some misallocation of capital. And what about the governance in, um, in normal companies that, that have a normal structure um, uh, or, or one that we're more familiar with perhaps in the state-owned enterprises? Um, what about the um, management priorities there? Is, is that different or is there a, a development that is yet to happen in, in some of those companies? So one thing when people talk about China, and this is actually true for Asia actually, it's not just a China story, um, people will say, oh, corporate governance is, is poor. I think that we have to think about what, what we mean by that. Actually, quite often, particularly when you're meeting companies that are not the mega caps who've already got experience, um, the, the company will be owned majority by the founder and a couple of his friends, let's say, and they've never really had to deal with shareholders before. So it's not that they're, they're cowboys and they're, they're, you know, they're going to run off of your money and they're you know, the fraudulent accounting. That's not true at all. It's just that they haven't had to deal with the, the expectations of, of shareholders. And, and that can be seen, that's not bad corporate governance, it's just inexperienced corporate governance. So how do we engage then with, with companies like that? I mean, that's a, a large part of yeah. what Fidelity yeah. um, investment professionals talk about um, externally. So what are the conversations like? There's no other substitute to having your feet on the ground and going to talk, into, going to, talk to them. Um, whether that's through the analysts, um, the portfolio management team, or, or quite often for our equity capital markets team, who, who whose role is to um, uh, whose role is corporate engagement to to discuss some of the things that we that we hold dear, shall we say, if you like, from um, our investment perspective, and and discuss things that we will vote on and, and and talk about those issues. That's a very important point, and it's something that's sometimes misinterpreted mm -hmm. outside of Asia. Is effectively, if you look at large 
even small Asian companies, their ownership is usually more concentrated. So it's mm. it's usual to have the founder with the chairman with the, the the CEO. There is nothing really wrong about that, but to some extent, it also explains the explosion of the the bond market in in Asia. If you look at um, back in 2010, when the the bank, the European bank, started pulling out of Asia, we saw a lot of this issue coming on the market. They effectively had to change their mentality, show more to 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 issuer to investor. If you issue a bond and you want to get it rated, you need to disclose quite a few information, like when you list a, a, a company. And uh, th this has really helped also to improve the governance of the company that uh, that, that we cover. So these are still emerging. Um, this is um, there's, there's, there's some way to go still, but a lot of um, a lot of development has already happened. As you yeah, I, I would just be careful with the term emerging because um, it's slightly a different topic. But one of the things that I usually struggle with with uh, with investors that are not necessarily familiar with the the Asian space is Asia get put in the same bucket as emerging market. And um, it leads also people to say, oh, Asia is so expensive. Look at LATAM, you get much better yield, much better return. Yeah. It's like you're not comparing Apple with Apple. The, the reality when you invest, I'm going to focus on the, the fixed income side. Yeah. The reality is when you invest in Asia, you invest in about 16 different markets. And some of them are very developed. Some indeed. of them are highly developed. If you look at countries like, uh, like Hong Kong, like Singapore, they have they are at very high level of development. If you look at the, the GDP per capita of Singapore, it's actually higher than the GDP of capita from, from Germany. So you see, my point is that it's, it's a little bit dangerous to talk about emerging because we are talking of a good mix between developed and emerging economy. You make a really interesting point because people are beginning to shift from emerging market debt to Asia for precisely this sort of reason, that you, you change the risk profile. Um, it, there is a diversification away from other debt markets, but you are lowering the risk perhaps um, uh, that goes alongside that. I don't know if we are lowering the risk. Uh, I think that there is more awareness for what Asia has to offer. Up to recently, when people were looking at Asia, they were mostly looking at the yield that you can get, right? this chase for yield. And effectively, if you look at uh, the, the, the investment that you can make in the bond market in Asia, you would get a much higher yield than you get in Europe. You would get a similar yield that you get in, in, in the US, but for a lower duration. It's a very attractive proposition, just in terms of risk profile. But then people also start looking at the different sector where they can invest in. So we're talking about the, if you focus on the Asian US dollar bond market, it's, um, it's a market that has grown by about 20% on an annual basis every year over the past uh, 10 years. And this has led also to the emergence of new sectors a few years ago, if you wanted to bet on consumption or gaming, you would have one, two names. Now you have a real sector. So what people are seeing is it's not only about yield, it's about diversifying their portfolio into different industries. And the types of outcomes that people are looking for um, has moved on as well, Gary. Um, it, it, Asia isn't just about growth, no. No, I mean, there, there are other factors that, that we see as being quite interesting within the region. For example, dividend. Right? And, 
it, it often shocks people to, to think of Asia as a dividend market. But if you look, if you look in markets like Thailand, where the, the yield currently is around 2.7%, Taiwan, where it's above 3.5%, you know, we, we've got markets, and as Luke sort of said, is diversification. We've, we've got markets that offer different things for, for different types of investors. Um, and, and actually, someone was saying to me yesterday that they, they'd read a study that uh, one of the key drivers for share price sort of return and share price capital growth is, is an increase in dividend within the Asia region. Um, so it's telling you that there are other factors other than growth. Um, but of course, to grow your dividend, you, you generally have to grow your, you know, grow your business and grow your, ca uh, grow your cash flow. Um, so, that it, so it is linked, but, but there are other factors which we find quite interesting. And Luke, when uh, investors put their money into Asian fixed income, what exactly is it that, um, that they're buying? One point that we touch is this uh, a good mix, good balance between developed market and emerging market. That's, I, I couldn't stress enough this, uh, this point. So um, beside this, what they're also buying is diversification lower correlation with other markets. We started talking about the China onshore bond market. Again, a lot of people are looking at this market because it offers slightly higher yield than, than other markets. But from my point of view, what is the main benefits, especially in the market where a lot of people talk about stretch valuation or scared about volatility, what China onshore is providing you with is an asset class which has close to zero correlation with other asset classes. So you tell me what is better in your portfolio in terms of diversification. So I think this is, this is really what institutional investors are more and more looking for. They go beyond the yield and look at the diversification potential. And, and I think apart from that, on a whole, a bigger picture type of view, buying Asia, in particular the equity market, is you're buying the future, if, if the way I think about it. That the, the new businesses are developing in the region which uh, you know, don't exist anywhere else in, in the world. Tencent is a great example. Right? This is a, a, a platform uh, with, through their WeChat platform that has multiple f uh, functions that, that don't really exist in the West. And Western companies will look in and say, well, I wish we could do that. Um, so th so we, we, you are in, you're investing in the future. You're investing in the future growth as well. So just to throw out some stats, um, you know, we've got 4.5 billion people in the region, which is about 60% of the global population, 35% of the global GDP. Um, yet yeah, that is growing faster than most places in the world. So you're looking at places like Indonesia, 5% plus uh, GDP growth, China, 6, 6.5%, India, around 7% growth. So that 35% that of GDP which should grow over time if, if we continue to see the, the current trajectory, which we don't, we don't think Seems that would be, be no real. reason to see a change in, in Europe or the States at the moment. We do expect um, you know, GDP to continue growing at the rates that we've been seeing somewhat. Yet, at the same point in time, Asia x Japan is only 4.5% of the global uh, equity index. So there's an enormous mismatch. I know it's the same in, uh, in fixed income as well, that the, um, the proportions of, that are allocated to Asia um, are, are much smaller than they, they ought to be on that, um, on that measure. There are perhaps reasons for that, though. Um, we're, we're coming to the end. Um, so um, after an inspiring discussion, perhaps, on uh, the, the good reasons for, uh, for investing in Asia, what are the things that investors need to watch out for, though? What are the potential downsides? Um, because you can't just plow in. Look, the, the, the traditional risk that is uh, seen in markets like, uh, like Asia is the, the higher volatility. 
this is typically what people would tell you is in a period of uh, uncertainty, you're going to see much higher volatility on the emerging market, including Asia. It's actually not been the case. If we look at, um, I go back to, <laughs> to the, the Brexit mm. the referendum vote or the Trump election, what we've seen actually is that Asian US dollar bond market, especially on the investment grade side, have been a safe haven. Because you are, you are able to shift money into an environment with pretty well shelter from the rest of the world and where your opportunity costs are actually not that, uh, that, that high at all. It's an amazing turn of events. Gary? It is. And, and alongside that increased volatility, I, I must say that there is, there is generally greater retail participation in some, some markets, which, which does sort of create more churn. And, and so therefore, you can, you can be on the wrong side of that. So there, there's an element of risk there. Um, but also one of the things which I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of state-owned enterprises in, in the region and they are a big chunk of the market. And if you are a passive investor in particular, you, you are taking on the state-owned enterprise risk, which is you don't always know what's happening with the capital that's, that the company has. So, so there are elements of risk that you have to be aware of. Um, so therefore, going back to the point of why active, that's the, that's the key, one of the key sort of selling points for active in the region is you try and avoid those, those areas. Um, particularly, not all SOEs are bad, that's the, I want to say that, but um, there, there is a risk of capital misallocation. So, and Luke? So, we're going to hear probably over the next few months, if not years, about more default in, in China. This is already making the headlines of all the, the most of the international newspaper. The reality, the way we see it from on the ground, is it's a positive development. It's a positive development in the sense that it improved the capital allocation. The bad issuer, the bad company who are piling debt, who are just doing M&A in an unconsiderate way, they are going to be sanctioned. The government is going to is stepping away and say, look, investor, you need to realize the risk that you are taking. So it is beneficial for both companies because it helped them allocate capital properly. If you're a good company, you should pay less for your funding. And it's good for investor, because now when you put your money in the company, you know that you're going to be compensated for the risk that you are taking. So it's a, um, a more efficient market, Luke, that, that is maturing, and um, that, brings, that brings with it benefits. Gary? Um, and one other risk to think about as well is that you are taking on institutional risk, and, and by that I mean that you're still seeing some developments in develop within regulatory environments, um, even, it could even be sort of legal fields, um, in some cases um, governments, um, so Thailand is a great example where uh, we're going to see some elections, the first elections for a number of years next year, so there are those risks as well that you're embracing when you're looking at the region, um, but again you, you just need to be very selective. So plenty of opportunity, but go in with your eyes open is uh, perhaps the best way to, uh, to summarise it all. Let me thank you both, Gary Monham and Luke Fröhlich, uh, for joining me, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and is intended only for the person or entity to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website or the Fidelity SoundCloud or iTunes apps.